Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 44 years of industry experience. On the ride with us today and running the soundboard is our regular guest, Brian Call, a 40-year veteran of the automotive industry. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rob. Great to be along. Good to have you help us out today. And Bill Sherrill, a guy that's logged a lot of miles behind the wheel and always has a lot of great questions. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks, Rob. Nice to see you again. Today, we have two special guests on the drive, and this is going to be one of my favorite podcasts. We've got Brian Elza of the Stevens Point Brewery and John Harry of the Portage County Historical Society. Welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Thanks. Good to yeah, see yeah, you. Good to have you. You guys are the expert on our subject today, for sure. Well, we're going to fill a few more seats in the bus today, so let's hop in, buckle up, and hit the road. You guys may not know this, but you're two pretty important people to me because uh, we're talking about Point Beer, and it's a top of my list for sure. Also, the Point Brewery is a big part of the deep and rich history of Stevens Point, Wisconsin. So to the best of my research, the Point Brewery is celebrating 165 years this year. Is that true, guys? Yeah, 100%. That's a long, long time. You got Team Shrill Companies beat by 100 years. That's correct. We're celebrating 65. <laughs> wow. Yeah, we're celebrating 65 this year, but that stands nowhere near what you guys are doing. So that's just unbelievable. As a matter of fact, how old is Stevens Point? Isn't it like 164? The brewery predates the incorporation of the city by a year. So they are 1858. And uh, the brewery is 1857. Oh, my gosh. Now, how does that work? Uh, Well, I mean, (laughs) there wasn't just all of a sudden people here, right? (laughs) The the brewery was here. There was a logging community right on the river uh, where Piffner Pioneer Park is today. It was all logging camps and turned into lumber mills and things later on. But as the city became more and more populated, there was calls out to cities down south in like Milwaukee and Chicago, and they'd take out newspaper ads that would say, uh, you know, we're in search of school teachers or clergy or doctors and brewers. So this is an essential service that was provided to the people of Stevens Point way back when. And so George Reuter was a German immigrant and he was working at a brewery in Milwaukee and I'm guessing sauce one of these and said, I'm going to try it out and found this brewery in the exact location where it is today. On it, Today, it's Water Street. It used to be known as the Plank Road, and it was the main thoroughfare if you weren't going to come into town on water. And so uh, he, there was a hotel there called the Plank Road Hotel, and somebody had started construction of a brewery in 1856. And so he bought it, and in 1857, they started it. That's when we know that the first batch of beer was made. So those people were invited here, but nothing was given to them. It's like, come here and buy this brewery. It's like modern day, <laughs> land, it's the modern day land speculation, right? Being like, come up here, make it yeah. rich. And, you know, he was not low-level brewer at a big brewery in Milwaukee, and here he could be own guy. And so uh, then he was shortly thereafter joined by another uh, German immigrant named Franz Wally or Frank Wally. And so they were the the modern or the founders, if you want to call them that, of, of the brewery. And then George Reuter actually went up to Wausau and started another brewery in 1860. So his story here is actually pretty brief. Any connection to Reuter Ware attorney firm? I mean, <laughs> I just you know. see a lot of different names of people and things throughout the area, but his brewery, they that brewery actually survived until the late 60s. So they had a beer called North Star Beer up in up in Wausau. So, but obviously Point beat them out. Yes. So that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's absolutely amazing that uh, it started on the same piece of property that it is still today. 
Yeah, well, and the hotel, that actually lasted until the 50s. And that was the, for a long time, that was the brewmaster lived on site. And that was where the brewmaster's family house was. And then by the 50s, it was over 100 years old. And so they decided to put a new house up. And then now the brewery's expanded so much. But the, the second house is actually just, they moved it down the block. So that one still exists too. And then the where the beer is made, so the foundation we're thinking is the same foundation of the original brewery at, at some point. Um, where the brew house is today, they've been brewing beer in that room since 1872. So That's a while. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? A couple things have been upgraded since then. Yeah, a few things, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I would imagine that uh, expansion of some sort has become a big part of the history. I mean, you couldn't have uh, producing all the beer and items and soda and everything that you produce today back in that original building. So when did all that start to come about? I can cover the more historical stuff and Brian can talk about some of the more recent additions. So in 1872, the owner was a man named Andrew Lutz and it changed hands a couple times. And then Andrew Lutz was the owner and he was the owner from 1867 to 1897. So a huge period of stability within in the brewery. In 1872, he decided that they needed to expand their capacity. And so they needed to build a new, so they built this big, at the time, this big brew house that, like I said, is still within that facility today. And then not a lot happened as far as brewery development until 1907. In 1907, Point had their biggest competitor at a local level come up. So there were smaller breweries in town in various places, but nothing more than like you think of like a small craft brewery that just produces in-house. That was kind of where their competitors were at. In 1907, the Polish Brewing Company was founded. So a bunch of these tavern keepers didn't like that they had to give their money to these Germans. And they decided they were going to have this Polish beer. And so that was over on the corner of Wood and Wisconsin Street. It later became the Bakerite Bread Factory. So that building was used much longer as a, as a bakery. But uh, to compete, the brewery upgraded at that point. And it, that building is still encapsulated within the rest of it, but they hired a famed brewery architect to come and make that facility even better. And then as the way people were consuming beer started to change into the 1910s, they started bottling more. And so they started their bottling house, which is still the same bottling house. And where the gift shop is today was offices. So if you look in the right place, you can see a safe inside the gift shop. And that building is still pretty much would have functioned the same way if the merchandise wasn't in there. But then the brewery didn't really change much until the 90s, right? I believe so. Yeah. So that kind of leads us into like the more modern additions. Right. There was a kind of a sea change when two Milwaukee businessmen, Joe Martino and Jim Wickman, bought the brewery, Wisconsin owned again, and they invested heavily in adding to the footprint of the brewing capacity there. They did it initially with the idea that the added vessels would be filled up with contract production. So they took what was once a parking lot, a train track for delivering and taking out goods and for dropping off empty kegs and bottles. If you're a college student, uh, we hear from them today still now that they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. But they encapsulated that into what's called our quote-unquote courtyard. At the time, there are only a few stainless steel tanks in there. Right now, there's barely any place to walk because it's just a tank after tank has been lowered into the roof to add capacity as we try and keep up with demand for our branded business. We don't do much contract brewing anymore. So they've been in charge of like a pretty rapid expansion of our not only our capacity but our capabilities and the things we can brew the last two years they've invested three million dollars each year not in like beautification projects or tap rooms or anything like really 
public facing. It's all just been in modernizing equipment and added capacity, more stainless steel, whether it's lines, tanks, more centrifuges. So basically everything we can do faster and cleaner than we ever have before. So it's kind of staggering. And next year will be more of the same as we eye building a new brew house. Hey, if it's all about more production, that's the important stuff, right? Yeah, but you also <laughs> did the garden. The beer garden. We did the beer garden, that too. That public face. It, no, it's fantastic. It's just uh, when you think of the grand scheme of how much they've invested to make the brewery a, a better place and make better product, that was one of the easy parts, almost. It's something we've wanted for a long time. And I think a, a real full-fledged tap room is on the horizon. I'm sure we'll broach that. So is the, uh, the garden complete? Is that ready to go? Has it been used already, or is that coming up? I was, uh, I was much, there. Yeah. <laughs> it's good, it's it's good been, enough. It's been christened. Yeah. <laughs> well, so we used to do a, a tour in the building, and we had a tasting area in the building, and during COVID, we decided to repurpose that space for brewing vessels. And once public safety deemed it was okay to come back and visit the brewery and enjoy beer there, we needed a place to do it. So the beer garden was the answer in the interim. Much like everything else, it took all of the pieces for that beer garden twice as long as we expected for them to arrive. So we had a soft launch this summer, but this spring we're really looking to kick into high gear. Definitely have to get there myself for sure. And one of the pieces in the garden is a delivery truck. Isn't that correct? Yes. Kind of the impetus of how and why we're here about all about the car. But it's it's like been all about concept. the beer so far, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> about the concept to bring the listener back into vehicles and connection. But it was this beautiful old delivery vehicle. Yes. Someone had acquired it. I don't know if you'd say they were a collector, but they knew it had a Point Brewery logo and reached out to us on Facebook with a very reasonable price that they were looking for. We didn't really acquire it just to put it on display in the new Point patio. That was kind of a nice synergy there. We kind of have a habit of if anyone reaches out to us with a collection, we like to just repurchase anything that we don't already have. Um, A lot of it goes to the university. Some of it goes to the Point Burger bars for display. And ultimately, we want to have it back in a tap room or a public museum portion of the brewery. So that was really something we just jumped on because we wanted to get it back in our holdings. There were times during the brewery's history where the actual history was not the most important part of the brewing business. But now that's one of the things that sets us apart. Really, it's only Yingling and perhaps, depending on your metrics, Minhas, that's older than we are. So we kind of fight with our history when we do modernizations in the building because the lagering cellars arguably date back to 1857. But that story runs parallel with the products we make. So acquiring those things like that delivery truck are really important. And wasn't there the whole history around the delivery only, the distribution, I should say, only was connected to how far a truck could drive in a day and back Yeah. so that the drivers got home for dinner? Yeah. And well, then they had a huge photo. I mean, there's one that's blown up on the office walls of the brewery. Uh, next to the store but they had a whole fleet of different sized vehicles to take more or less different kinds of products and things so that the truck that they have in the beer garden now is like just a little fleet vehicle would be just it's a pickup truck you may have thrown some samples in it you may have thrown a few cases and stuff like that a salesman's truck or something right exactly Yeah. yeah it's not like one of the big huge trucks 
So I wrote the book on the, the history of the brewery. <laughs> and a picture of one of these trucks is on the cover of the book. It, or it's in the book, one of the two. But it, they, these things were used a lot. These things were workhorses. But there were actually horses at one point. Yeah, there were actual right. horses. So, and, and no, I was wait, trying, we're going back now. Come well, on. I was trying to figure out, knowing that I'm coming on this podcast to talk somewhat about transportation distribution things, and I was trying to figure out like if there was like a newspaper article that's like, Point Brewery bought a truck. And I couldn't find anything like that, but I imagine it had to have been sometime, I mean, sometime in the 20s. Before that, that wouldn't have been the, the method because there are pictures of horse-drawn carriages with loads of beer cases on it. So I would imagine later in Prohibition, Prohibition was really hard on the brewery financially. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, at one point they had outsourced their, so Point Special started during Prohibition as a near beer and how they would do it in those days. And there's better techniques now as far as like removing the alcohol, but you'd make a full beer and then you'd boil out the alcohol, which just That's a shame. kills the... <laughs> I guess it's the flavor. Right? Yeah. The oh, it just everything like, oh, dies. Don't boil your vegetables right? either. Well, that's so. still how, like, if you look at like a macro non-alcoholic beer, that's still like the method that they do it at. And so that's why it tastes the way it does. <laughs> but they had the point special and they were making more money off of soda at that point. And so they actually, and I haven't been able to figure out where, but they, for a couple of years, actually made beer at a different facility too, just so that they didn't have to keep the, when you move from soda to beer, as Brian can probably attest to, the cleaning is a nightmare because soda is so sugary and syrupy. Yeah, almost a day. Yeah. To clean and CIP everything. Yeah. Just so they, at one point, but by 1931, in our minds, we're like, we're only two years away from the end of Prohibition. They had no idea. They only had four staff members left. So they had a brewmaster, the owner, an accountant, and like a helper. That's it. And so like the accountant wasn't just doing accountant things, right? <laughs> Everybody was doing everything. And so after Prohibition is when they started to strengthen their distribution back up. And I'm guessing the fleet that the pictures are from are from the late 30s, 40s time. But uh, I don't know, what was the year on the truck? Do we have a, a year on? No, uh, yeah. I, I wish I knew that. It looks like a 49, yeah. 50 maybe? It, yeah, it seems sure. like a 40s to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know that they just getting through World War II was another challenge too because, again, you're only less than 10 years out from the end of Prohibition. And World War I was used as an excuse to go into Prohibition in the first place. And so they had to ration products and all that stuff again. And so you had to choose, like, do I want to spend money on tires, which were super expensive, you could only get some of, or do I want to make sure our equipment's up to date? And so there was a lot of self-distribution, you know, people coming to get their beer to bring it, you know. So it wasn't probably until after World War II that they had like a full fleet of trucks that they could get. Now, with Bill's previous comment on distribution only went out as far as the drivers could go and get back at night. How far out was that? I mean, where did the point beer reach to? For a variety of reasons, they didn't really maybe Wausau to the north, maybe Marshfield to the west. These towns had their own breweries already, too, so you were encroaching on, you know, Marshfield had a brewing company into the 60s. Wausau, as I said, they had a brewery into the 60s, too. And so that was part of it. The brewery didn't have a ton of capacity either, and people in Stevens Point drink a lot of point beer. And so there wasn't like a huge need to go outside of the 30 to 50 mile radius to get the beer out for a long time. So, yeah. Now, looking at the Point Beer website and looking at the locator, obviously it's game on these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our Point Beer footprint expanded pretty far in the 90s and has since contracted with the boom of all craft breweries in the country. I think there's upwards of 9,000 now. So when, you know, when we were expanding Point Beer in the 90s, there were less, but craft breweries 
grew exponentially. So our hard cider brand is actually going out farther and wider than Point Beer right now. Point Beer is definitely focused as a Midwestern brew. There are some outliers like Point Amber and Point Special or big in Florida right now. That's fantastic. I would like to go down there and do a tasting for folks. But our whole hog beers are also doing great on the East Coast. That's kind of our uh, quote-unquote brewmaster, super crafty line, higher ABVs, bolder flavors, way more ingredients, longer to make. But yeah, Point Beer is definitely more of a Midwest and especially Wisconsin-focused brew, which kind of is going back to its roots a little bit. And that's great for us because we know that audience. We are that audience. And with Cider Boys, we're hanging on by our coattails just to keep up with demand for that outside of Wisconsin. Nice, nice. So, so obviously, uh, it's a lot more than just the 49 Chevy truck. There are people that have worked at the brewery that are still there for 44 years. And when you say, would you like to come do a podcast? They like shrivel up and they're like, no, I want to go fix the pasteurizer. I'm not going to be on a podcast. And so even my direct boss, she's been at the brewery for over 20 years. And so she was imparting to me like some of her favorite stories about like she started out just in the gift shop as a regular employee when she was younger. And she just remembers drivers coming back at the end of the day with just wads of cash, which is probably another reason why the route had to come back that day. Yeah, probably. <laughs> And also, I think the distribution footprint could have been bigger because the story goes that drivers used to take pretty liberal breaks at each stop. Like, oh, well, I guess I need to have a pint here while you unload the truck. So They enjoyed the product, too. Yeah, yeah. It was a different time. It was probably a great time to work in beer distribution. I mean, there, it's still a great industry right now, too. Well, there's a name for that. As part of being in the brewery, you got all the samples all day long. That's called uh, employee retention. <laughs> no, there's actually a name for it. I, get, I can't think of what it is. but A perk? Yeah. Uh, they, had, they, they had like a tap. So where the bar used to be in the courtyard, there's a hallway that runs behind there. And there was like a tap in the wall where you could come fill up your beer with your employees. And then Ardok Shuda, who was the operations manager for years, and he would be like, well, you get there and, you know, you'd have to have a beer with breakfast. And then it's like 11 o'clock, so you have your first break beer and then lunch beer. Then the truck drivers would come back, and so you'd have to. And like, I'm like, how did how did this place ever like actually put anything out? <laughs> oh, they were all big believers. That's yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, you, well, you got a quality testers. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, right. Yeah. You knew every day that yeah, we're putting out a good product. <laughs> go home the end of the day and take a nap. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's just funny. It's part of the history of the brewery I wish I knew more of because like beer distribution right now, it's a three-tier system where you've got retailers, distributors, and then the manufacturers. And our beer distributors who do the truck driving now for us, they are still very integral to what we do. I mean, our Cider Boys brand, part of that is like us having drivers and beer reps at different distributors who are essentially our sales guys. They believe in the product that much that they're helping grow the brand. So even though we don't have our own fleet in-house, the distributors we work with are just a huge part of our business. And like they're almost like they're like your ambassadors. Yes, exactly. They're the ones that people at bars or at good liquor stores, good beer stores see on a day to day basis, see them rolling in something new and talk about it because it's not our sales guys are there at every place. You know, we've got a team of five that covers 50 states. Now, if you're driving a beer delivery truck, you're a good guy. (laughs) In my book, absolutely. (laughs) Everybody likes a beer delivery driver. Yeah. I don't think I have anything else about the trucks. I don't know when it switched over to being like, so after Prohibition, the three-tier system came into place because the big breweries like owned too much power in the marketplace and they had what were called tide houses. 
And so if you wanted a Miller beer, you would go to a Miller Tide House. But that operated differently in places like Stevens Point. But the national laws were that you had to have a middleman or a distributor that like diluted your influence in the marketplace. So that really started after Prohibition. Oh yeah, it was like part of the repeal laws was the three-tier system. But it might have been once you reached a certain barrel amount that it like kicked in. Because Point, and I know a lot of the other breweries, they would just have their own drivers in-house until it became... You know, now it makes more economic sense to outsource that to somebody else because they can make sure your product gets to the places better than you can. So, yeah, I mean, we need to worry about our tunnel pasteurizer hitting 185 pasteurization units, not like brakes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need a machine shop for cars. Right. Right. Well, where was the fleet housed back when we had a yeah, fleet? Yeah. So, if you look at the brewery today, so you've got on the left, you have like the office building and bottle house, and then well, now there's a courtyard, but once you get through the courtyard, there's like the building that was dates all the way back to the beginning at some point and has been expanded upon over the years. But most of that building is from 1907. But then if you go to the right, there's like a 1935 garage building. And that's when I'm guessing they started to acquire all their vehicles is because they have this huge garage there and the fleet would either would park on the side. So I'm guessing they would use that for repairs or you know storage. And now it's the malt barn. Yeah. So <laughs> the malt barn, chocolate malt, your pills and malt. So it's, it's got a good, there good now. place, right? Yeah. So I got to get into the tour here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking we're going after this. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> well, if you stick the samples I brought outside, since it's negative seventeen, it shouldn't take long before they're palatable. <laughs> don't forget about them. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to forget about yeah, them. Right? I won't. <laughs> I it's promise. The worst feeling when you're like, I left a beer in the freezer. <laughs> But I also wanted a slushy, so. (laughs) My next point here, international beer competition. So there's a big word, international. (laughs) So that's not just Kansas anymore. (laughs) No, no, it's not. And I think there's a good starting point for how Point Breweries got its foot in the door in terms of being a national and international player with its quality in beer? Yeah, well, so 1973, there was a newspaper columnist named Mike Royko that wrote an article. And he wrote an article that basically was just taking American beer to the cleaners. American beer by this point was really like just bland. Like when you thought about it in like a holistic way, it was basically like every macro beer you could find on the shelves today, that's all there was. The smaller regional breweries like Point were going out of business left and right. Point was, I mean, they were probably on the verge of not being in business anymore if it weren't for what I'm about to tell you was going to happen. The number of breweries. So at the end of Prohibition, there were 750 breweries still in existence in the United States, which sounds like a lot. There's over 8,000 now, Um, but 750 is still not nothing. But 40 years later, so by 1973, there were only 65 breweries left in the whole country. And so Point Brewery was go down this path at some point because, like I said, like Wausau lost their brewery, Marshall Field lost their brewery, Oshkosh had breweries, those were all gone. And these were breweries that had followings and had customers. Mike Royko, because beer had become such a, just a bland, homogenized kind of product, he wrote an article and... I don't know if anybody here has heard of Mike Royko. So he was a syndicated newspaper columnist. His home paper was the Chicago Daily News. Was he a contemporary of like Roger Ebert? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Yeah, because they were in the same city writing for similar publications. But he was syndicated around the country. So like I was talking with my dad, who's in his late 60s, and he's like, oh, I remember Mike Royko's publication. So he was looked to as that was like one of the only ways to get opinion kind of news. And 
he wrote an article that said American beer tastes as if it was passed through a horse first. Oh, that's <laughs> and, not, so not not okay. like mincing words. And people were like really ticked off. They're like, "How dare you?" That you is know? a form of filtration. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> natural. Yeah, natural. Yeah. But people were really ticked off. They're like, "How dare you attack my beer?" I drink this stuff and I think it's good. Who cares what you think? And he said, you know what? Let's put it to the test. And modern beer taste test, this might be one of the first ones. Because if you look way, way back at like World's Fairs, you like you have different breweries getting gold medals and things in the 19th century. But this is 1973 and nobody was being, what tastes best, uh, Miller or Schlitz? It's just like, well, they both exist. Because there wasn't like a lot of choice in the marketplace. And so the end result of the taste test that then got published, so he took basically every beer he could find. And so you had the big American brands. He got some, like, there were some imports coming in from Germany and England. And so he got a taste panel together of just random people, and they rated things and put tasting notes down and the number one beer in the world was Würzburger from germany which i don't know if that still even exists but the second place beer and the number one american beer was point special who and most of the people reading his column was like where is steven's point <laughs> you know, exactly. no, nobody ever heard of it so one of the notes on it from one of the people is like i could drink this all night and so it really boosted the awareness in the stock that there's this brewery like doing something that's not just this like big bland lager and sales took off it helped the brewery survive there were all sorts of requests for distribution outside of wisconsin they were only distributing in like a 60 mile range still at that point there was a distributor in Montana that wanted like 200 cases a week. TWA, the airlines, wanted to carry Point Beer on all their flights. And Ken Shabilsky and uh, Phil Shabilsky, his dad, they were the people in charge of the brewery at that point. And they knew that they were not ready for that kind of expansion. If they were going to give beer to TWA, then the elbow room might not get their point special. And they wanted to make sure that places like that in Stevens Point had the opportunity to drink their beer before anybody else. So it became kind of, you hear about certain breweries that might be only available in the state of Wisconsin and people travel for it. That was kind of what point was at that point. And so it wasn't until 1990 that they actually left the state to distribute. And I think that was just only to Minnesota at that point. That article really saved a lot of livelihoods and saved a historic brewery from going under. Didn't know that detail. And that really, it, that era is when the brewery, its bread and butter was making lagers and the DNA of Point Brewery is in making fantastic, arguably some of the best lagers in the world. And then during the craft beer boom, a lot of the breweries that came to prominence weren't built on making lagers. They were making IPAs and they were making red ales. So Point Brewery kind of transitioned into craft beer with, is would you say it's maple weed or Point Amber? Yeah, well, so Point Amber was in 1994. And that was actually, they were making the beer for a sausage company. And they, down in Sheboygan, you can probably guess, <laughs> they were only making it for that. But then they started being like, well, we'll put it on for tours. And people were like, this is a really good beer. And so that's how Point Amber came into being. And that was entry-level craft beer. And I think that's probably follows my own like drinking journey as far as like how I got into like different styles of beer after college or during college. <laughs> that maple wheat, which is something that I would love to see if the... Brewmaster Mike Schroffnagel would want to do like a one-off on it. There's a couple point. things in the, the works. That's fun. Um, so, oh, you heard it here. First. Yeah, right? <laughs> and then I think the one beer is the Cascade Pale Ale. Mm -hmm. So that was late 90s, early, and probably early 2000s. And that was the first pale ale produced in this area. 
Yeah, that was my first point. That was in Chicago. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that was the reach at that point. And so I think that, that uh, they started to diversify so much, which is great. So has the ingredients or the recipe for Point Special Beer changed over the years? Yes and no. So in order to become a craft brewery, according to the Brewers Association, less than 50% of your products can contain adjuncts. So Point Special was made with an adjunct, which again... Corn. Corn. I was going to say, you have to like define this yeah. term. Adjunct is anything added into a beer. So technically, if you have a fruit beer, like if you had, like Point makes a... Mm-hmm. And a Rattler. Rattler. Like, those are adjuncts. Same thing with, uh, is there actual brownie in the brownie hazelnut? No. Okay. <laughs> chocolate, cocoa. But, but like, not, chocolate, not minced brownies. Chocolate, cocoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It tastes like, it tastes like it, though. It tastes so good. I mean, chocolate would be an adjunct into a beer, though. It's anything outside of the, like, four main ingredients of a beer. Okay. So, But if we think of the macro breweries, especially back in the day, using corn, it's easier to work with, cheaper, and it balances the flavor with that sweetness um, in an easier way. So when we joined the Brewers Association to be categorized as a craft brewery, especially because that's where our brews were heading and our diversified portfolio, we switched to using all malt instead of corn. But the ratio of all the ingredients is exactly the same. The types of malt we use, the proprietary yeast that we have, because that's a custom strain for us, all that's the same. It's basically just taking, instead of corn, use malt, I would dare anyone to be able to tell the difference. If we made the same beer today, just swapped out one ingredient for the other, I doubt anyone could tell the difference. The main thing that's changed between now and 1960, 70, 80, 90 is just the amount of advanced equipment we have, and we can make the beer cleaner, more consistent than ever before. And really, a lot of it comes down to just like cleaning, better equipment, and time. Our brewmaster is a big stickler on like, oh, there's we need a truck that's leaving for Illinois tomorrow. Too bad the beer's not done. So that's just how things go. It's X amount of days until Point Special is ready. So yeah, again, there's one ingredient difference, and that's largely so we could be classified as a craft brewery. And I would think if anyone could tell the difference, they're probably the brewmaster. I think what it does actually too is is so I'm really big when I drink beer on mouth feel. I love to like the, the feeling that you get inside your mouth when you're swallowing. I think is so important to how you really appreciate a beer, and I think that all malt characteristic gives you kind of that grainy, bready feel as you're drinking it. It's not a very heavy beer, but you still get that. Which, oh, which it's I didn't body. Think, right, and you didn't get that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's better. <laughs> That's my vote. I agree. <laughs> now, the Stevens Point Brewery is also involved in a lot of community involvement and fundraising. Is that the case? Yeah, absolutely. I think, John, like, there's a lot of fun anecdotes in your book about the way that the brewery is so ingrained in the community. If you'd want to share a couple of those, because I think it gives context to why we still do that today. Yeah. So during the dark days of, well, post-prohibition, it was still in the Great Depression, and there weren't as many breweries around and things like that. And so uh, there's stories that I heard from Ken Shabilsky before he passed, where he was like, because his dad had worked there since 1930. And where these businessmen from Chicago would come up with wads of cash and be like, just give us the beer. And they'd be like, no, like we, because these taverns in town need this beer. And so like right there is the commitment to the beer. I mean, if you, you can go back even further than that though, because I just thought about 1897, the owner, the new owner after Andrew Lutz was named Gustav Kunzel and the nice shiny dome on St. Peter's church on the North side. He helped finance that. So it goes back all the way. The philanthropic aspect of Point Beer goes back quite a ways. And then there still is, 
although it's not used for it anymore, there's a baseball field across the street from the brewery. That was Calvin Korfman Field. Calvin Korfman was an owner in the 60s, and he commissioned this baseball field, and it hasn't been used for baseball in quite some time, but it was a Little League field. So there are pictures of Little League games happening across the street from the brewery, which I'm getting the parents really liked. I would imagine so, dad was quite excited. I that I went to baseball games at that field. Okay, and I don't know, I don't know when the last time that was used as a field. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so speaking of that baseball field, let's talk about the Point Bach Run. Yeah, now it's a part. Yeah, well, and Bach Run, again, is uh, something we do that's, it's A, a super fun event. It's a great way to get some exercise, but it is also a fundraiser for a ton of community sports, especially for youth. So all of that money that the Bach Run committee gathers from registrations all gets filtered back to youth sports. So the Bach Run, Pointtoberfest, similar event in spirit. It's come to the brewery, big tent party, enjoyed beer, sample things, but also that's a fundraiser for Pints for Prostates. So there's a lot of things that we do from as small as like giving beer to church picnics for their fundraisers to sponsoring financially one of our local arts groups, youth soccer, we donate cases and cases of soda for that. Humane Society, we did an adoption program where you adopt a pet, you get a case of points special. So we try to keep things fun. And then even when it's COVID times, just donating pallets of soda to the hospitals early on, not that like ER nurses and janitors need soda to get through the day but it doesn't hurt so it's just a gesture so yeah there's things big and small that we do to try and stay connected to everyone that's been supporting us for so long so you found reasons to use that park across the street obviously yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that point block run is just absolutely amazing because i think that thing sells out within the first 30 minutes some years, I think the quickest was 45 minutes. This year, because of the pandemic and not knowing exactly what the world's going to look like in March, I think we still have 50 spots left out of 2,000. So if anyone's My listening, wife and I are doing it, which good. is just ridiculous for me. <laughs> you can walk. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to run the whole way. <laughs> well, well, there's the carrot at the end of the stick, and that's yeah. free pints of beer. Hey, oh, yeah, yeah. Like that. That's the party for sure. Yeah, right? It's worth it. Let me yeah, tell you. You got to get your carbs back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Train like a German. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, as with every All About the Car podcast, we always break away halfway through and we hit the road for a Wisconsin road trip. And today we're hopping in the bus and heading to the National Brewery Museum. Brian, where is that? That would be in Potosi, Wisconsin. Say that again, Potosi. Potosi, Wisconsin. Okay. Down in my old stomping grounds. I'm originally from Lancaster, which is about 12 miles away from Potosi. That brewery ran from 1852 to 1972. And I got a special tie to that. My wife's grandpa worked at that brewery for years and years. And as a little girl, she used to play around in the brewery. And then after it closed, all the broken glass and all the bottles and everything that's in there, she used to play around that. So, Well, that sounds safe. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> that thing was really run into the ground after they closed. And back in the 80s, the Brewing Association got together and tried to get a National Brewery Museum going, and I think it was in the 90s that it really took off. There was three different communities in the running for that. It was Milwaukee, obviously, St. Louis, and Potosi, Wisconsin, which is a town of six, 600 people. And we're talking a national here. It's a national brewery, yep. It is quite the complex. They have festivals down there. They have areas for wedding receptions, parties. There's also a restaurant there that serves awesome food. And the actual Potosi Brewery is up and going again. 
and all the proceeds from that go back into the brewery museum. So it's a fabulous place to go. Have you guys been there? I have twice. So I collect, so the, the Bruriana people are the ones that put it on. So the, that's all like the, the collectibles that you see at bars or antique stores and things like that. And so it's like a massive collection of beer memorabilia that is just sight to see. Yeah, There's fantastic. some cool stuff in there for sure. I mean, it is the only reason that you would probably ever head there. So it's great that it exists to like bring this little river community kind of back to life. Yeah. So. It's amazing how well it's done. You go there on the weekends and it's packed. People going out for rides and coming from Iowa, Illinois, come up and spend a couple hours there. So if you get a chance, I would highly recommend it. So it's almost like a day trip. You could do that in a day. From Stevens Point to Potosi is about three hours. Spend a couple hours there. You can easily make that in a day's trip. Or make a weekend and do Dubuque, which is also gorgeous. Yeah, there's, gosh darn, there's like seven breweries down in the the, Dubuque area nowadays. It's amazing how the the brewing industry has just exploded over the past 20 years. Brian knows. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad we have such a strong scene here, yeah. too, with Plover and Amherst. I mean, we everyone kind of has their own specialty in Portage County, Stevens Point area. So similarly, like beer tourism, you can hit five to eight establishments, depending on what you're looking for over the weekend. And yeah, we don't have to go too far, do we? <laughs> no. <laughs> my hat's off to you. One of my favorite beers is Point Amber. Oh, awesome. You get it out of the tap and it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's a tasty one. <laughs> Yeah, uh, picture that bowling. That's uh, hard to beat. Yeah. Now, that museum in Potosi is also open year-round, I believe. And it is. is there a fee? You know if there's a fee to walking through there? Uh, there is. It's minimal. I think it is. There's a small price it's of admission to, you know, maybe five, ten bucks at the most. So, definitely worth the trip. Worth the trip for any of us beer connoisseurs would be a good little trip to hit down in the Potosi. Yep. Kids got me a neon sign from Potosi Brewery this summer. Hey, oh, it's nice. awesome. It goes along with my point neon sign in the garage. There you go. Are they originals? The point one is the Potosi one is a repop. Wow, that's great. What does the point one look like? It's got the mountains on it. Okay. Trees. The trees. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, that's a that's good wonderful. one. Wonderful. Yep. Yeah. That was a fun period of branding for the mm-hmm. brewery. It was the true blue Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yep. 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 Well, back in the van and back to Stevens Point we go. All right, now that we've gotten back from our road trip, we're going to get down to business here. We've learned a lot about the Point Brewery. Now let's get down to what's important, and that's the beer. So how many beers are available at one given time? For just talking about the Point brand, there are five year-round brews that we make, but we also have a number of seasonal brews, your Bach, Oktoberfest, for example, our Summer Beer Lakeside. We have six of those. Our whole hog brand is largely the same five year rounds and a number of seasonals. And we've got some new stuff cooking for that brand uh, this year as well. Cider Boys has just two year rounds and then it filters out to a number of seasonals. And we put out a new one to two flavors each year with Cider Boys. Now, when you say the point brand and non-point brand, is that Cider Boys is the non? Or Whole Hog. Okay. It's a sister company. And a lot of it is just, you know, when you think of point special or point beer, it might be, oh, that's what my grandfather drank or that's what my aunt drank. So Whole Hog was a chance to do things that people that were used to point beer weren't expecting, like our Whole Hog Pumpkin Ale. It's won five Great American Beer Fest awards, which is kind of like winning five Oscars. So it's like a Meryl Streep 
of beer. It's very good. But I don't know if that beer would have done as well with just the point name on it because it might be like, well, I already drink point amber. I don't know if I want to do that. So yeah, the pumpkin ale, it's a big beer. It tastes like a pumpkin pie that gets you drunk. It's fantastic. So that's why Whole Hog is around. <laughs> so I got to ask an obvious question. Considering the whole time in history here with the Stevens Point Brewery, what's the most popular beer? What's the number one? Now, in sales or in profit, I would, you know, like, mm, I have yeah. to think about Either it way, it's got to be Point Special, right? Yeah, I think yeah. just the, okay. the duration of Point Special, it's still our flagship beer. I mean, there are beers that have better margin than Point Special. Point Special is a beer that we keep reasonably priced and we make it as efficiently as we can because it's a beer people have grown up with and love so much. Whereas some of our other beers, we throw tons of ingredients and a lot of time at them and the raw materials themselves are super expensive. So we run the range from like Point Special being a fantastically priced craft lager to something that's very difficult to make craft beer that you can only find in Brooklyn. Got it. Excellent. So in the history, are there any flops? And when I say flops, one that just didn't quite go off as planned or last very long. It might have been a little bit ahead of its time, but not something that anyone in the area was asking for, a point light. Yeah, listen, <laughs> point, light. point light has been attempted at least twice that I know of. So it was attempted in the 80s because light beer was, as a national beverage, was really taking off. But then you're competing against, like, behemoths. In Miller Lite. Yeah, Miller Lite, Bud Light. Like, to me, it's similar to what's happening with seltzer now, where it's like, there are the brands. Like, you see smaller brands trying to do it, and it's just like, why? And so I think Point was trying to find their corner of the light beer market. From what I understand, so they tried it in the 80s into the early 90s, dropped it. And then they brought it back in the 2000s for a few years. I remember drinking it in college. It wasn't great. I'm just going to say that. It was not like to the standard of the other products that I've ever had from Point. And so it didn't really last too long. So you can find, still find coasters and glasses and things like out at antique stores and stuff. But I don't understand, though, because like Point Special to me, it's not a dark beer. I would say it's lighter than middle of the road even, but it's still, you know, it's a full-bodied lager. And I guess, I don't know who would just want that. Right. And so, super flavorful. Right. Yeah. So the other item that you had mentioned earlier in our podcast here was soda. You know, that played a significant part in the brewery's history. Is that correct? Yeah. So even going back all the way to the ownership of Andrew Lutz, which was 1867 and 97, his son owned a soda company, a soda bottler. And so that was more or less how it was made in those days was the concentrated syrup was shipped up. You would dilute it with water and bottle it. That's kind of how it worked. So that was before Prohibition. And then during Prohibition, obviously, they had to really get into the sodas. And so they made some of their own flavors, but then also bottled for Orange Crush and Purple Crush, and which I think was owned by Coke at that point. So they made sodas. And then they made sodas a couple other times. I think they made it in the 50s for a while, too. And then the modern lineup of sodas came in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. So That was always my understanding, is that the sodas business really allowed the Point Brewery to stay in operation throughout this longevity. So you really give the soda business a lot of the credit for coming through Prohibition? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, a lot of breweries, that was kind of like, well, we have all this bottling equipment. What do we do with it? But again, I think it's a testament to the local community and supporting because they could have bought soda from other breweries. Is there a connection to the current soda line to the soda that was being made at that point? I don't believe so. No, no it's, what it's, were some of the fun flavors that you found labels for? In our, yeah, it's archive? just like just a 
cherry soda, <laughs> grape soda. You know, like there's not like it's not as like creative as it is now with kitty cocktail flavored yeah. soda or anything like that. But yeah, I think that soda in brewing history is important, especially for getting through Prohibition for Point. And they couldn't have done it. They didn't really have any other options to like different breweries did other things. There's a brewery in Milwaukee that made snowplows. There was uh, one in Oshkosh that became like cold storage because they had all this refrigeration equipment and i don't think point had the facilities to do something like that and so they had to rely on soda was point the root beer the first soda yes that came out i will say it's delicious too yep especially with ice cream (laughs) 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 yeah and all of them use uh, real sugar the root beer uses wisconsin honey in it too so it's a craft soda and we're uh, really excited we've got new flavors coming out with the soda line too and yeah point like as a brewery it's funny we'll release a beer that has like fruit in it for example and you'll have some folks on our facebook page like just go back to making maple weed it was great but we try and make a different beer for everyone and the soda is kind of the same way it's like how does my like eight-year-old get involved with like my passion for your brewery it's like oh we've got a kitty cocktail or we've got a concord grape so and cider boys was another one of those like we're missing folks that enjoy beverages whether they're celebrating or commiserating so it's like we can make a hard cider and we can arguably make it better than any cidery in the country too. So yeah, we just try and make something for everyone. Now with the deep and rich history of the brewery itself, the building that still has the original walls, possibly foundation and everything. Can we tour that? You can. Tours are back open. Funny, before COVID, if you looked on like TripAdvisor or Yelp, the number one thing to do in Stevens Point, besides maybe the Sculpture Park. Sculpture Park is number three. Now? Yeah, Point Brew is one. Okay. The green circle is two. Well, they're all awesome. So you can interchange them. It's a great deal too. It's $5. You get to visit the second oldest brewery in the country. You get three samples. You get a pint glass at the end. So it's more, it's almost just like a courtesy $5. Like make sure you come because <laughs> we can only take around X amount of people at a time. So now we've got even smaller numbers that we're taking around just due to COVID. And it's also, the plant is incredibly loud right now too. So there are different parts that we used to go through. So now we've got a different tour out. So if you've done the tour before, now is a great time to come check it out again. And then we're pouring beers right in the gift shop uh, for folks that come on the tour. Nice. Any age limitations on the tour? No. So a family? Yeah, we've got soda that will serve. You can bring a kid in a Bjorn if you want to. You just need closed-toed shoes because it is an operating brewery. So where do I go to see about getting on the tour? You can go to pointbeer.com or you can call our gift shop and that number is right on the bottom of the website or if you Google us, so Stevens Point Brewery. So I've got to ask a big question I've had when I was doing my research is when and where and how did the pointy head dude come into play? (laughs) Our historian. So there's a photograph of when Andrew Lutz owned the brewery and sitting in the front row. So it's all the employees and they have beers and there's a beer barrel in front of them. And in the front row on the end is this guy with just kind of this elongated shape in his head. And he's kind of just got a pointy chin. And I mean, there was nothing that was ever done with that forever until the late 80s is when the first iteration. And so the the advertisements would have, so they made his real head was not pointy. He had a hat on. Oh, I figured. Right. (laughs) And nobody really knows who this guy is. So So this guy's really famous, but he doesn't know it. Or his family, maybe. Well, we, we don't know. What his thought is that there was another brewer in town named George Illenberger who was like a brewmaster, kind of. Like, he would travel around. He owned a brewery at one point, too. But he, he spent some time at the Lutz Brewery. And it kind of is like, well, he's dressed pretty nice. He's got a pocket watch. And so he would be not just an average worker. So perhaps he's that. Perhaps he's a relative of Andrew Lutz. We don't really know. 
but in the late 80s they had the, the advertisements where they had the pointy head and it said like choosing the name was easy making great products is hard or something like that yeah and then so i think it kind of limped along and then in the early 2000s when jim and joe bought the place then they gave him the name of nicholas c point after joe's kid and growing up i always thought it was a connection to the cone heads on saturday oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah that so, was just free advertising yeah, yeah. Exactly. thanks lauren michaels well brian if you had to coin the future of the brewery in one sentence what would you say innovation quality and having fun that sounds good it sounds like you'd be around for a long time Sure hope so. Uh, I I don't think I'm going to be there for another 165 years, but I'd like to be there for a large chunk of it. It's a great place to work. Maybe somebody will find a picture of you one day <laughs> and they'll turn <laughs> you into the mascot. <laughs> oh, those poor eyeballs. <laughs> well, today's podcast will go down as one of my favorite episodes because we got to talk about beer. And what could be better than to talk to the resident experts, Brian and John, about the history, the present, and the bright future of the Stevens Point Brewery. Thank you so much for having us. It was a lot of fun. Tons of fun. Thanks for being here. Cheers, everyone. We hope to have you right along next time on All About the Car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to simply send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. We'll see you next time.